This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity in Houston, Texas, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America. Please join us for worship on Sundays at 8, 9, and 11.15, and visit us online at holytrinityrec.org. Enjoy the sermon. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our service, or our sermon this morning, comes from our Old Testament lesson, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. Again, that's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. So when you call someone your light, what does that mean? And what image does that conjure up in your mind? Uh, Does that necessarily mean like the person is your, uh, to use another metaphor, your anchor or your rock. It's the person who is that steady personality in your life when all things seems things seem to be going up in smoke or there's chaos all around. Who do you look to to be your constant source of groundedness? Um, Another picture that you might conjure up for a person who might be your light is your inspiration. Who do you look to uh, in your field uh, or your specialty or in your calling uh, as a person who is the epitome of what it is that you do? Another possible image is that of uh, a person who is very moral, uh, somebody who we can look to in a time of moral compromise or, or moral obscurity to glean clarity. Uh, sometimes we might look in this instance for someone in the p- political realm, uh, people that we used to call statesmen that tended to rise above whatever partisan divide that there was and did what was good for the country rather than for their own person. Problem, of course, with such metaphor, such people, and such looking to see someone who is a light is, is that they tend to let us down. Uh, there's this uh, sense that when we look to somebody like this, they will provide this sense of perfection, or whatever we have in our mind, and based on that, we kind of turn the idea of a mentor or a, or a guide in this life into idolatry. And we see it all the time. We see it uh, whether it be sports figures, uh, whether it be actresses or actors, or we even see it in the political realm, of course, when we vote. Uh, we always think that the next candidate will be the perfect president or the perfect governor or the perfect mayor. Uh, This person has all the answers to my life's questions or to all my hurts. And last week I talked a little bit about what uh, I termed as uh, where do you go to for perfect justice? Who is that perfect justice maker? And we looked a little bit at who Christ was in the vein of Jeremiah. Today we look more in the sense of where do you receive your hope? Who is that? source of hope in the midst of whatever circumstance you're at. And when we look at 
Isaiah in chapter 9 and our reading today in verses 2 through 7, it provides this hope that people look for. However, when you look at these verses, again, you have to kind of back up a little bit and go to verse 1 of the chapter to find out why Isaiah is saying what he's saying. It says in that first verse that there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Gentile or Galilee of the nations. So in this part of Isaiah, uh, he is addressing a group of people who have gone through a very punishing time. Uh, At this point, in about 732 B.C., the Assyrians had taken over the nation of Israel. So if you know anything about your Bible history, at this point in world history, Judah and Israel used to be one nation shortly after King Solomon died. They split in half, and the nation, or excuse me, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin broke off, creating what was known as the Southern Kingdom, and then the rest of the nation or the tribes created what was known as the Northern Kingdom. So when Isaiah talks about Zebulun and Naphtali, he's talking about probably the two most northern tribes in that area, and. They were the ones who bore the brunt of this Assyrian invasion uh, that came along and which was God-ordained in order to punish the nation of Israel for their idolatry and for basically breaking the covenant that he uh, had established with Israel. So these people, of course, are now find themselves under a, a yoke of oppression, for lack of a better term, and they are feeling as though hope is lost. However, God, unlike other people that we know, don't leave us lost. They don't leave us without hope. When God punishes or disciplines his people, he usually puts in a word of prophecy as to what their future holds. And that's where we join in in verse 2 all the way down through verse 7 of this text. He talks about the people who walked in darkness, which was this nor- these two tribes in the northern kingdom in general, and that these people have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, darkness, excuse me, on them has light shined. So in here there's this general sense that Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah, is giving these people a sense of hope. He's basically looking or standing in the future and showing these folks that that all is lost, that there is something that is going to come and that is going to rescue them. And he goes down and he talks a little bit about what this future is going to look like. In verses 3 and forward, he talks about uh, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, the people therein rejoice before you as the, with joy at the harvest, and as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And he gives two reasons why this nation is so happy now. Why is it glorious? Why is it rejoicing in the midst of the fact that when they're being told all of this, they're not exactly in the, in the midst of anything joyous. Rather, they're in the midst of tragedy. He says, one, the yoke of his burden and the staff of his sho- for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor 
you have broken, as on the day of Midian. So here Isaiah is talking about this time when God is going to come and break the burden of the Assyrians and release the northern kingdom. And that they will once again enjoy prosperity. And they will again have happiness and a purpose for living. And then he goes on to say in, verses, in verse 5 that for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Here he talks about the end of war. He talks about these people uh, being able to take the uniforms, the boots of the soldiers that have invaded them and put them on a fire and burning them up. Um, a little note of description, when he talks about garments being rolled in blood at that time, soldiers when they would invade or before they would go into battle, some of these armies would actually take their clothes and they would put blood on the ground, probably like livestock blood, and they would roll in it. And of not, they would come with blood all over their clothing, and that was to strike terror in the eyes of the people they were going to attack. But God turns the tables and says that these same soldiers that came to invade you, we will take their uniforms, or I will take these uniforms, and they will not be a threat or a source of terror any longer. So he gives this wonderful future for the nation in the first verses of our reading. But then he goes down and he gets very specific. Nations need a leader. And this, of course, is where people are going to draw their hope. And this is the third reason why the nation is going to be glad. And then he goes into this series of verses that we all know so well from Christmas. <clears throat> For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and the name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now in verse 6, we notice right away, um, in Hebrew poetry, we have what are known as couplets. And it talks about a child being born, talks about a son being given. So there are theologians who believe that this is a hidden, not so hidden, but more of an implied thought that the person who is going to come, this son that's going to be born to the nation, is going to have two natures. He's not simply a human being. He's also God. To do that, we have to go forward a little bit into the New Testament. We look, for instance, at John 3.16. And in John 3.16, of course, we know it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Of course, the idea here is, is that God did not give physical birth to the Son, but he does give him over to send him to the earth to carry out his mission of salvation. So there's this sense that he was never born. Um, he uh, was an infinite, an infinite na had an infinite nature, and that this person, who we know as Jesus, is the Son of God himself. But he's also got a human nature. When we look at that, we see, <clears throat> and we go forward into Luke chapter 2, and we look at the address of the shepherds to, or by the angels, and they say the following. 
An angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So here we get the human nature of this person. This this person will be truly God. He will be truly human. And that is what sets him apart and makes him the ultimate example of the son of David who the people expected to come back one day and rule over their nation. And then it goes on and it gives us a fourfold title for this new child. That he's going to grow and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Some scholars kind of break that up into two titles itself, Wonderful and Counselor. But Wonderful Counselor brings the idea up of a person who's adept at wartime strategy. He's a strategist. He's a diplomat. He's somebody who will wisely look out for the protection of his nation. Mighty God uh, could mean a couple different things. One could, again, point to this person's divinity. Um, It also has this idea that when a king would go out to battle, that he would be understood to be basically the representative of God, and that he was trained by God to carry out battle. And therefore, he actually became God, in a sense, a representative so that the people or the soldiers would follow him. His other title would be Everlasting Father. Uh, Here it means that a king cares for his people. Uh, He's not simply one that goes out to war. He's not somebody who looks out for himself and his own interests, but he's one that looks over his people like a father is supposed to do with his family. He provides for them. He counsels them. He directs them. He gives them just rulings in courts of law. And then his last title, but not any means its least title, is the Prince of Peace. There comes stability with this king. We have this idea that he's not only going to run internal affairs um, righteously, but he's also going to look out and he's going to have good relations with the nation around him so that the nation itself will have peace. And then it goes on to talk about the increase of this king's government. This person, this that we ultimately know as Jesus again, uh, talks about his government increasing. There will be no end to it. There will be no end to the peace that he brings. And that he will be on his righteous throne, the throne of David, and over his kingdom. So this per, the, Jesus' kingdom or the kingdom of this child that Isaiah talks about is somebody who has an expanding kingdom. It doesn't, it doesn't stop within the borders of Israel. It goes beyond that. And as we go on in the sermon, we'll show you a couple places where that's true. But it's an expanding kingdom. It's one where his influence never ends. It's one where his influence overflows. And it will be established, it will be upheld with justice and with righteousness, much like we talked about last week, and from this time and forevermore. This is an eternal throne, this is an eternal king, one who will always be on the throne and never taken off. And lastly, in that verse, it says, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. 
So this is not going to be a king that is backed merely by human popularity. Much as we see in politics today, someone's influence in office is oftentimes in uh, waivers based on the popularity that he sees amongst his people. Because, at least in this country, he is voted on and put into office by the citizens of the country. However, with this instance, since this man is a king, God is the one who orchestrates the events and he will make sure that what he says will come to pass. And because of that, these people can rejoice in the fact that not only will they have a future king that will live forever and ever and rule them as such, but they will have the, this king will have the backing of God himself. So as we look forward, and again, we look into the early times of Christ and his birth narratives that we just celebrated, we look first and see how Jesus fulfills these various roles. First place is in Luke chapter 1 verse 79 this is a prophecy that Zechariah the king or the father of John the Baptist made regarding his own son but then majority of the prophecy goes to the one that he's supposed to herald and in verse 79 he says this he says that this person that he's going to uh, lay the way for is the one who's going to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace so it sounds an awful light like what we just read in the book of Isaiah. Not only is he supposed to do it for the nation, but later on when Jesus is born and he's going into the temple uh, with Mary for, his, um, uh, for Mary's uh, cleansing ceremony, it says the following. The prophet Simeon takes the baby and he pronounces this uh, saying over it. And he says, Lord, now you are letting... Your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. So Jesus is not only meant to be the joy of their, his own people, but he is a light of revelation for those beyond. Christ is not simply a regional king. He's king of everything. And then later on we find in, cha in John chapter 8 what Jesus says about himself. This is a point in time where he's an adult, he's in his ministry, and he's actually gone down to Jerusalem for what we know as Hanukkah, the festival of lights. And he says this about himself. He says again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here we have Jesus himself talking about himself being the light for all people to come to. He is the source of hope, the source of morality, the source of direction for anyone who would believe in him. So we may find that certain people are our light to a limited degree, like our parents or our other relatives or people that we've met along the way in life, but it's a small step as I mentioned, from adoration to idolatry. Sooner or later, the lights in our life show that they are human, after all. Jesus, however, has not and will not fail to be the light, the hope that this world can turn to, not only for those 
for the love it craves, but also for the people, for the peace it is in search of. Political leaders and personalities and from various fields will dim over time. But Christ, by the word of the Father himself, will only increase as his gospel spreads over the world to provide salvation from God's wrath and sin and the peace with God that man needs. Christ is our light and our only hope that will not fail us. Amen.